Chapter 44, Part 2 of The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Adam Ringeth. Whatever might be the origin or the merit of the Twelve Tables, they obtained among the Romans that blind and partial reverence which the lawyers of every country delight to bestow on their municipal institutions. The study is recommended by Cicero as equally pleasant and instructive. Quote, they amuse the mind by the remembrance of old words and the portrait of ancient manners. They inculcate the soundest principles of government and morals. And I am not afraid to affirm that the brief composition of the Decembers surpasses in genuine value the libraries of Grecian philosophy. How admirable, unquote, says Tully, with honest or affected prejudice, quote, is the wisdom of our ancestors. We alone are the masters of civil prudence, and our superiority is the more conspicuous if we deign to cast our eyes on the rude and almost ridiculous jurisprudence of Draco, of Solon, and Lycurgus, unquote. The twelve tables were committed to the memory of the young and the meditation of the old. They were transcribed and illustrated with learned diligence. They had escaped the flames of the Gauls. They subsisted in the age of Justinian, and their subsequent loss has been imperfectly restored by the labors of modern critics. But although these venerable monuments were considered as the rule of right and the fountain of justice, they were overwhelmed by the weight and variety of new laws, which at the end of five centuries, became a grievance more intolerable than the vices of the city. Three thousand brass plates, the acts of the senate of the people, were deposited in the capital, and some of the acts, as the Julian law against extortion, surpassed the number of a hundred chapters. The Decembers had neglected to import the sanction of Zeleucus, which so long maintained the integrity of his republic. A Locrian, who proposed any new law, stood forth in the assembly of the people with a cord round his neck, and if the law was rejected, the innovator was instantly strangled. The Decembers had been named, and their tables were approved, by an assembly of the centuries, in which riches preponderated against numbers. To the first class of Romans, the proprietors of 100,000 pounds of copper, 98 votes were assigned, and only 95 were left for the six inferior classes, distributed according to their substance by the artful policy of Servius. But the tribunes soon established a more specious and popular maxim, that every citizen has an equal right to enact the laws which he is bound to obey. Instead of the centuries, they convened the tribes, and the patricians, after an impotent struggle, submitted to the decrees of an assembly in which their votes were confounded with those of the meanest plebeians. Yet, as long as the tribe successively passed over narrow bridges and gave their voices aloud, the conduct of each citizen was exposed to the eyes and ears of his friends and countrymen. The insolvent debtor consulted the wishes of his creditor, the client would have blushed to oppose the views of his patron. The general was followed by his veterans, and the aspect of a grave magistrate was a living lesson to the multitude. 
a new method of secret ballot abolished the influence of fear and shame, of honor and interest, and the abuse of freedom accelerated the progress of anarchy and despotism. The Romans had aspired to be equal. They were leveled by the equality of servitude, and the dictates of Augustus were patiently ratified by the formal consent of the tribes or centuries. Once, and once only, he experienced a sincere and strenuous opposition. His subjects had resigned all political liberty. They defended the freedom of domestic life. A law which enforced the obligation and strengthened the bonds of marriage was clamorously rejected. Propertius, in the arms of Delia, applauded the victory of licentious love, and the project of reform was suspended till a new and more tractable generation had arisen in the world. Such an example was not necessary to instruct a prudent usurper of the mischief of popular assemblies, and their abolition, which Augustus had silently prepared, was accomplished without resistance, and almost without notice, on the accession of his successor. Sixty thousand plebeian legislators, whose numbers made formidable and poverty secure, were supplanted by six hundred senators, who held their honors, their fortunes, and their lives by the clemency of the emperor. The loss of executive power was alleviated by the gift of legislative authority, and Ulpian might assert, after the practice of two hundred years, that the decrees of the Senate obtained the force and validity of laws. In the times of freedom, the resolves of the people had often been dictated by the passion or error of the moment. The Cornelian, Pompeian, and Julian laws were adapted by a single hand to the prevailing disorders. But the Senate, under the reign of the Caesars, was composed of magistrates and lawyers, and in questions of private jurisprudence, the integrity of their judgment was seldom perverted by fear or interest. The silence or ambiguity of the laws was supplied by the occasional edicts of those magistrates who were invested with the honors of the state. This ancient prerogative of the Roman kings was transferred, in their respective offices, to the consuls and dictators, the censors and praetors, and a similar right was assumed by the tribunes of the people, the aediles, and the proconsuls. At Rome, and in the provinces, the duties of the subject and the intentions of the governor were proclaimed, and the civil jurisprudence was reformed by the annual edicts of the supreme judge, the praetor of the city. As soon as he ascended his tribunal, he announced by the voice of the crier, and afterwards inscribed on a white wall, the rules which he proposed to follow in the decision of doubtful cases, and the relief which his equity would afford from the precise rigor of ancient statutes. A principle of discretion more congenial to monarchy was introduced into the Republic. The art of respecting the name and eluding the efficacy of the laws was improved by successive praetors. Subtleties and fictions were invented to defeat the plainest meaning of the Decembers, and where the end was salutary, the means were frequently absurd. The secret or probable wish of the dead was suffered to prevail over the order of succession and the forms of testaments, and the claimant, who was excluded from the character of heir, accepted with equal pleasure from an indulgent praetor the possession of the goods of his late kinsman or benefactor. 
In the redress of private wrongs, compensations and fines were substituted to the absolute rigor of the twelve tables. Time and space were annihilated by fanciful suppositions, and the plea of youth, or fraud, or violence, annulled the obligation or excused the performance of an inconvenient contract. A jurisdiction thus vague and arbitrary was exposed to the most dangerous abuse. The substance, as well as the form, of justice were often sacrificed to the prejudices of virtue, the bias of laudable affection, and the grosser seductions of interest or resentment. But the errors or vices of each praetor expired with his annual office. Such maxims alone as had been approved by reason and practice were copied by succeeding judges. The rule of proceeding was defined by the solution of new cases, and the temptations of injustice were removed by the Cornelian law, which compelled the praetor of the year to adhere to the spirit and letter of his first proclamation. It was reserved for the curiosity and learning of Adrian to accomplish the design which had been conceived by the genius of Caesar, and the praetorship of Salvius Julian, an eminent lawyer, was immortalized by the composition of the perpetual edict. This well-digested code was ratified by the emperor and the senate. The long divorce of law and equity was at length reconciled, and instead of the twelve tables, the perpetual edict was fixed as the invariable standard of civil jurisprudence. From Augustus to Trajan, the modest Caesars were content to promulgate their edicts in the various characters of a Roman magistrate, and in the decrees of the Senate, the epistles and orations of the prince were respectfully inserted. Adrian appears to have been the first who assumed, without disguise, the plenitude of legislative power. And this innovation, so agreeable to his active mind, was countenanced by the patience of the times, and his long absence from the seat of government. The same policy was embraced by succeeding monarchs, and according to the harsh metaphor of Tertullian, quote, the gloomy and intricate forest of ancient laws was cleared away by the acts of royal mandates and constitutions. Unquote. During four centuries, from Adrian to Justinian, the public and private jurisprudence was molded by the will of the sovereign, and few institutions, either human or divine, were permitted to stand on their former basis. The origin of imperial legislation was concealed by the darkness of ages and the terrors of armed despotism and a double tiction was propagated by the servility, or perhaps the ignorance, of the civilians, who basked in the sunshine of the Roman and Byzantine courts. To the prayer of the ancient Caesars, the people or the Senate had sometimes granted a personal exemption from the obligation and penalty of particular statutes, and each indulgence was an act of jurisdiction exercised by the Republic over the first of her citizens. His humble privilege was at length transformed into the prerogative of a tyrant, and the Latin expression of, quote, released from the laws, unquote, was supposed to exalt the emperor above all human restraints, and to leave his conscience and reason as the sacred measure of his conduct. A similar dependence was implied in the decrees of the Senate, which, in every reign, defined the titles and powers of an elective magistrate. But it was not before the ideas, and even the language, 
of the Romans have been corrupted, that a royal law and an irrevocable gift of the people was created by the fancy of Ulpian, or more probably of Tribonian himself, and the origin of imperial power, though false in fact and slavish in its consequence, was supported on a principle of freedom and justice. Quote, the pleasure of the emperor has the vigor and effect of law, since the Roman people, by the royal law, have transferred to their prince the full extent of their own power and sovereignty. Unquote. The will of a single man, of a child perhaps, was allowed to prevail over the wisdom of ages and the inclinations of millions. And the degenerate Greeks were proud to declare that in his hands alone the arbitrary exercise of legislation could be safely deposited. Quote, what interest or passion, unquote, exclaims Theophilus in the court of Justinian, quote, had reached the calm and sublime elevation of the monarch. He is already master of the lives and fortunes of his subjects, and those who have incurred his displeasure are already numbered with the dead. Unquote. Disdaining the language of flattery, the historian may confess that in questions of private jurisprudence, the absolute sovereign of a great empire can seldom be influenced by any personal considerations. Virtue, or even reason, will suggest to his impartial mind that he is the guardian of peace and equity, and that the interest of society is inseparably connected with his own. Under the weakest and most vicious reign, the seed of justice was filled by the wisdom and integrity of Papinian and Ulpian, and the purest materials of the Code and Pandex are inscribed with the names of Caracalla and his ministers. The tyrant of Rome was sometimes the benefactor of the provinces. A dagger terminated the crimes of Domitian, but the prudence of Nerva confirmed his acts, which, in the joy of their deliverance, had been rescinded by an indignant senate. Yet in the rescripts, replies to the consultations of the magistrates, the wisest of princes might be deceived by a partial exposition of the case. And this abuse, which placed their hasty decisions on the same level with mature and deliberate acts of legislation, was ineffectually condemned by the sense and example of Trajan. The rescripts of the emperor, his grants and decrees, his edicts and pragmatic sanctions, were subscribed in purple ink, and transmitted to the provinces as general or special laws, which the magistrates were bound to execute and the people to obey. But as their number continually multiplied, the rule of obedience became each day more doubtful and obscure, till the will of the sovereign was fixed and ascertained in the Gregorian, the Hermogenian, and the Theodosian codes. The two first, of which some fragments have escaped, were framed by two private lawyers to preserve the constitutions of the pagan emperors from Adrian to Constantine. The third, which is still extant, was digested in sixteen books by the order of the younger Theodosius to consecrate the laws of the Christian princes from Constantine to his own reign. But the three codes obtained an equal authority in the tribunals, and any act which was not included in the sacred deposit might be disregarded by the judge as opurious or obsolete. End of chapter 44, part 2. Recording by Adam Ringgut.